Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening, where we, where we continue to reflect into the richness of the gospel text. Uh, this evening, we have the opportunity to engage uh, the beginning of uh, John chapter 6. So we uh, move away from the Gospel of Mark briefly to engage the multiplication of the loaves in John, uh, John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. So, so much to talk about, and I will do this with one Debbie Rizals, who is with me here in studio. Debbie, great to have you with me another evening. Thank you so much, Joe. So uh, what's unique off the top about this uh, episode, this passage, Debbie, is that it is one of the few events, one of the few narratives and episodes that comes to us from the gospel that is in all four gospels. Mm-hmm. All four evangelists make a point to record the multiplication of the loaves. And I speak to this off the top because, well, why is that relevant? I pose to our listening audience the question, Debbie, when you get together as a family and you are among many others and you all have this desire to share one particular story, uh, the question I would ask is, why? Uh, Well, at the very least, it is going to be important. At Mm -hmm. the very least, it is going to be relevant to why you come together as a family. The four evangelists certainly make a point to highlight the multiplication of the loaves. Why? Because it's important to the church, the family of God. And so uh, how important? Well, this is what we are going to talk about this evening, Debbie, as again, we have the opportunity to discuss this rich, rich passage that comes to us from John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. Jesus went across the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs he was performing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. The Jewish feast of Passover was near. When Jesus raised his eyes and saw that a large crowd was coming to him, he said to Philip, Where can we buy enough food for them to eat? He said this to test him, because he knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred days' wages worth of food would not be enough for each of them to have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what good are these for so many? Jesus said, Have the people recline. Now there was a great deal of grass in that place. So the men reclined, about five thousand in number. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed them to those who were reclining and also as much as the fish as they wanted. When they had had their fill, he said to his disciples, Gather the fragments left over, so that nothing will be wasted. So they collected them and filled twelve wicker baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves that had been more than they could eat. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, This is truly the prophet, 
the one who is to come into the world. Since Jesus knew that they were going to come and carry him off to make him a king, he withdrew again to the mountain alone. Amen. Thanks, Deb. So uh, certainly when we hear this reading, we think about how the multiplication of the loaves anticipates the miracle of the Eucharist, where that Mm -hmm. simple unleavened bread is transformed into the body, blood, soul, and divinity. And as I was just noting, all four evangelists clearly, Debbie, want us to see that life in God's kingdom is a banquet, Mm -hmm. is a feast. Now, why is this in all four Gospels? Why does this lie at the heart of all four Gospels? Well, it is to remember, and I, I do not want this point to be lost on any of our listeners, Debbie. When you talk about the Eucharistic banquet, when you talk about uh, this feast of Thanksgiving, uh, what we are talking about is the New Testament itself. In Mark 14, verse 24, when Jesus Christ says, this is the blood of the new covenant. In effect, when you translate that, what he's saying is, this is the blood of the New Testament. For the first 250 years, when you heard the word New Testament, you did not think of a corpus of 27 books. No, but you thought of, well, what the good news was all about. Essentially, the very life of Christ, because it was the life of Christ that was the transforming message incarnate. Uh, It's so easy to forget about this, Debbie, you know, 2,000 years later, when we think about the New Testament and we think about the uh, 27 books, the New Testament, we simply just don't give it much thought at all. But what does the New Testament itself bear witness to? If Testament translates covenant, then Testament itself speaks to uh, bearing witness on behalf of something or someone, huh? Well, what is the New Testament bearing witness on behalf of? Well, that the New Testament is just the good news, that the New Testament is just repent and believe in the kingdom of God, or that the New Testament is actually just not a corpus of books, but Corpus Christi, the body of Christ. We should never forget, Debbie, that when we think about the New Testament, we have to put it in the context of not only the four Gospels, but how Paul envisioned it. Because Paul in his epistles is working out the essence of the New Testament and what this transforming message was all about. This is widely significant because we know St. Paul, of course, as once Saul, once the prized pupil of Rabbi Gamaliel. Who was Rabbi Gamaliel? Well, this is the rabbi we read of in Acts 5 of course, who was the rabbi of rabbis. It was said of Rabbi Gamaliel that when he died, the glory of the Torah died, and Saul was his prized people. What does that mean? Well, that means, Debbie, that Saul, who we now know as St. Paul, knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. This is why he quotes the Old Testament over 500 times to speak to how The person of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promise and at once calls us to share in this transforming message, which as Paul speaks to it, that indeed the good news is about a transforming message, one that is rooted in what the Eucharist, the Eucharist. The only time that Paul quotes Christ is in the institution of the Eucharist, the words he proclaimed in the upper room. It's the only time he directly quotes Christ. It's the only time we see him actually echoing the gospel itself. Of course, Mark 14, 24. You know, Paul experiences this dramatic conversion. 
and he goes off into the Arabian Peninsula for a period of three years to try to figure it all out. And then he comes back and he meets with Peter for a period of 15 days, where when you translate the Greek, he's actually interviewing Peter for 15 days. What is he doing? He's trying to get at the essence of the New Testament message. Did he figure it out? Did he get it? Well, of course he did. And what was it? Well, what does he tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 and following? Those verses speak to those all-important words, do this in remembrance of me. I am the very life being poured out for man. My flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And to live in me, you must eat and drink. This is the wonder and the beauty of the new covenant, the wonder and the beauty of the New Testament. So, why do the four evangelists, Debbie, focus in on the banquet, the multiplication of the loaves? Because in the Eucharist, indeed, God all throughout the world is multiplying his greatness. You know, as you were talking about Paul, I was reflecting, you know, if you think about, you know, Paul was a Pharisee, very intelligent, had studied the scriptures, very intelligent. This wasn't, I don't know, I think sometimes we can think soldiers are some smelly old guy who, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. this was not the case for Paul. And I would imagine that he was thinking to himself, how did I miss this? Mm -hmm. You know, it really kind of disintegrated Maybe his discernment. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. he's thinking, we all have to discern. How did I miss? Where where were the signs? What did I miss? And I can imagine during that time with Peter, he was like, okay, tell me how I missed this. What, Mm -hmm. you know, just Mm -hmm. as you had said, reducing him to all humility. Start as like breaking him down. You know, the Marine Corps said they kind of break you down to build you back up. Yeah. That's kind of what Jesus did with Paul. Yeah. He was kind of a little high and mighty, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and he had to break him down three years and to build him up in Christ. Yeah, in, in the book of Acts, when you read of uh, Saul's conversion, now, of course, as we know him, St. Paul, we think of those verses where he, he gets up and he starts to preach in the synagogue. Mm-hmm. But then he leaves for a time. Well, he talks about in his epistles, he leaves for a period of three years. So he, there he was preaching in the synagogue, probably realizing, well, I don't know if I fully get this. Yeah. You know, so I need to think about this This is more. important. And I think this is a great lesson for us too, Debbie. We think we get it. We mm-hmm. think we understand, but you use the word discernment. That is a word in Latin, which means to come to understand. We need to be discerning. Mm-hmm. Um, and to speak of, you know, discernment, we need to be discerning of this passage, what is going on uh, in this episode. And, you know, you read these verses carefully, and there's so many things that are going on. One of the things that struck me in my, maybe my second reading, Debbie, Christ looking up and seeing a great multitude coming towards him. I was reminded of last week's passage where, you know, they wanted to get away, but these crowds that came by the droves uh, did not allow them to go on retreat, if you will, to, to get away. And so he looks up and, and he sees them. There's tremendous excitement about the, the signs that he is performing. Right. And uh, aware of this, obviously, because he is God, he performs another great sign for sure. But as we've already touched upon, it is pointing towards something even 
greater. Mm. And of course, that something greater is, well, what Jesus says, right? <laughs> something greater than manna is here, uh, the new manna in, in the Eucharist. You know, there's something interesting about this whole chapter 6. So often, Debbie, we look at chapter 6 in two categories. The first, well, what we've been talking about here this evening, the multiplication of the loaves, and the second, basically everything else after that, the bread of life discourse. And what is often missed are those six verses in between the multiplication of the loaves and the bread of life discourse, which speaks to Christ walking on water. Why is that relevant? Well, we read of these verses where Christ leads us to the seashore. If we are going to live this new life in the heavenly Jerusalem, we have to pray for an increase in faith in the Eucharist itself, that we might receive the Eucharist in faith so that we might be better in how we live one foot on earth and one foot in heaven. Just not living with the end in mind, but helping others live with the end in mind. This is what Jesus wants us to see, and certainly uh, there's a reason why John inserts this particular passage of Jesus walking on water. He wants us to see that yes, it is about the multiplication of the loaves, and yes, it is about the Eucharist, but this is about the stuff of the supernatural. And we need to increase in our faith if we are going to go deeper in our faith and lead others to the seashores of the fullness of truth. I shared with Joe earlier that, you know, I learned so much by doing this show with him. <laughs> Anytime scripture describes something or is very specific about something. It's mm -hmm. like, there's some significance there. Yes. And I found that the barley loaves were indeed a sign of, it called it the food of the poor in, in the translation that I had. Mm -hmm. um, poverty, the bread of, the bread of poverty. Mm -hmm. And isn't that exactly what the Eucharist is? Yeah. It's, it's Christ and it's in his absolute poverty. You know, Debbie, as you speak to poverty there, I cannot help but think about uh, the Blessed Sacrament and this wonderful gift we've been given as Catholics to adore our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. And what are we adoring? But poverty itself. And when we gaze upon the Blessed Sacrament, that unleavened bread, which has now been transformed into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, we are made to remember that above all else, our Lord is a Lord of poverty. I mean, he could have it any way he wants it, Debbie, and yet he teaches every human in human history that if we're going to achieve greatness, it must always start with humility, meekness, and that overarching principle of poverty itself. Indeed, the Eucharist is the sacrament of poverty. Indeed, the Eucharist is a acute reminder of our own need to enter into the simplicity of our everyday life. What a great opportunity we have. And for our non-Catholic listeners, I just want to make a point about adoration. Maybe you're asking, why go to adoration? Well, again, remember, as Catholics, we do believe that Jesus Christ is truly uh, present in uh, the Eucharist, body, blood, soul, and divinity, and it is there where we uh, converse with God. Remember, Debbie, that the word adoration itself in the Latin, uh, when you break it down, is mouth-to-mouth, -mouth, in effect, okay? I do not know, Debbie, if there is a more intimate encounter we can possibly have with God other than receiving the Eucharist itself 
than to go to him before the Blessed Sacrament and go deeper in our prayer. Remember, prayer itself is defined as conversation with God. Well, how about that adoration is to speak to God mouth to mouth. Amen to that. And as you speak to the barley loaves and poverty, it would be very important to note that the essence of the spiritual message that Christ wants to get across is that nothing will ever be enough until it is given away. Mm. Nothing will ever be enough until it is given away. What am I saying there? Enough is never enough until we've given ourselves totally and entirely. Surrender. Yes, and is this not the essence of the Christian vocation as a whole, Debbie, to will the good of the other in this mode of self-sacrificial love? Uh, amen to that. Uh, what else could we say here to this passage? We read in John 6, verses 8 to 9, uh, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many? You know, this better translates as a wee lad. So the emphasis is little. There is a little boy. So, so once again, you have this juxtaposition of greatness coming from littleness, that enough is provided for if there is at least little. And we're just not talking about little in some numerical sense, but also being little in God. Uh, this is why there's an emphasis in the diminutive Greek here. Now, that being said, there are a lot of people who want to explain this miracle on rational grounds. Right. The miracle was uh, sharing. Sharing. Go ahead, Debbie, and read verses 14 and 15 for me. When the people saw the signs he had done, they said, this is truly the prophet and the one who is to come into the world. Since Jesus knew that they were going to come and carry him off to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain alone. Read that first line again, Debbie, and I want our listeners to, to listen to this and tell me that this would have been the reaction if he just was so good at sharing. Oh, okay, yeah. This is truly the prophet. The one who is to come into the world. Debbie, there are a lot of people who get swept away with this interpretation of the great miracle being that Christ was so good at teaching us how to share. But um, Colby, my son, can teach us how to share. But in him teaching us how to share, uh, no one is going to sit there and declare with great emphasis that, behold, here we have a prophet. No, no, that is silly. We have to read Scripture carefully, and in doing so, we are going to gain a deeper appreciation of the message of Jesus Christ. Yes, practically, but also in that greater supernatural context. There is another figure I think is very important in this story, and that is Philip. Our Lord is asking... Have him go buy food. Yes, go, go get food. Go buy some food. Yes, and Philip says, but Lord, how can we do this? We uh, don't have enough money, and it takes money to buy bread. Now, this is interesting because as you were just noting, you know, words are important, Debbie, when you read sacred mm -hmm. scripture, as are names. This comes to us in John chapter 6. We have already been introduced to Philip in the opening chapter of John. And in the opening chapter of John, towards the end of that chapter, what we read is this uh, awesome encounter between Philip and Christ. There's not a lot of commentary to, but certainly something happened because out from that encounter, 
which is really just one verse, he goes and finds Nathanael. And he's talking about how we have found the fulfillment to the law of Moses. And of course, that is the exchange when Nathanael says, you know, what good comes from Nazareth? And his response is, come and see. So what's the point of getting into this, Debbie? Philip had this incredible encounter with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And yet he says to our Lord, but how can we do this? Mm-hmm. We don't have enough money and it takes money to buy bread. Come on, be practical, Lord. <laughs> you know, right? does money lead our ministry or trust that most concrete act in virtue of faith Trust that filial disposition of giving ourselves totally and entirely unto God. Again, surrender. You were talking about poverty earlier. Mm-hmm. Debbie, an atheist <laughs> couldn't have said it any better. I agree. I mean, but Lord, how can we do this? Mm-hmm. Maybe the atheist wouldn't have said, Lord, huh? Yeah. Uh, we, we don't have enough money. It takes money to buy bread. Come on. think. It rationally. almost sounds like something Judas would say. Yes. Honestly. Yes. yes. The money bag holder. Sure. Sure. And again, the point to be had here is we can have encounters with Christ. We can have that metanoia experience, that dramatic conversion. We already talked mm-hmm. about Paul, you know where he fell down um, on the road to Damascus. We can have these dramatic conversions, but that is not enough. It is not enough in effect, Debbie, to say, uh, I'm saved, or it is not enough to say, I believe one time. Right. Because Philip said as much, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, (laughs) Satan himself was the first to actually profess belief in in the Holy One of God. Right. Right. So words don't mean a whole lot in this context. The point is this, transformation is gradual, and we have to be ever-present to that, mindful of the great uh, Sermon on the Mount, specifically within the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on Trust, when Christ says, do not be anxious, do not worry, and the Greek, do not be preoccupied. Mm -hmm. It's really what we heard last week, Debbie, again in our uh, gospel from Mark, when he was commissioning the Twelve, and he sent them out without anything just go, just go. And what he wanted them to focus on was trust, that absolute dependence upon God. And certainly we need to be mindful of this. And it brings us to some degree back to uh, the child, the wee lad, <laughs> mm-hmm. who um, has that disposition of surrender, who has that disposition of one who is ready to be commissioned. It's so beautiful. I thought of, you know, just a few weeks ago, we had that, the story of the centurion and Christ just is marveled by the faith. You, you don't even need to go. You just say the words. What? And then we have, as a, in, in contrast, we have two faithful disciples of his, mm-hmm. two of his apostles, and yeah. they're both going, I don't see how this is going to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that lack of... And what's, what's even more mind-boggling is that they've gathered this large crowd because of all the signs that he had been performing on the sick. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you already have that he's been doing all these signs, all these wonders, proving, and then the other guys are going, well, I don't know how he's doing this because truly there are too many people here. Yeah, yeah. It's us. It, it's it, us, it, folks. It, it, it really is. This is why... Um, I speak to 
conversion being a gradual transformation. It Debbie, so is. Because we are so weak. We are mm-hmm. so human. Mm-hmm. I think about the Israelites in the Old Testament. It always baffles me up to a point that here you have all of these faithful people who just witnessed the parting of this great sea. How in the world can you forget that? Let alone, how can you forget to just ask your neighbor, did that really happen? Uh, yeah. That's always baffled me. Yet, yet, how often do we do that in our sure. life? Sure. How often does God do something extraordinary in our life and then suddenly something happens, something goes wrong, mm-hmm. and then we doubt him? Right. It was exactly not, what I was thinking. It was not too far after the parting of the Red Sea that they were questioning God. They started grumbling. Yeah. I mean, he feeds them in the desert, you know, with quail and manna. And what are they doing? Water in the, yeah. off the, from the rock of yep. Horeb. Yep, yep. And they're questioning. And we do the same thing. Yes. Because, yeah, I mean, you think about uh, the miracle of the loaves and fishes, and this is in the heart of his ministry. This is in the heart of all the, the great miracles that he was performing. Um, and yet they doubt. Um, It ought to remind us of our own weakness, Mm -hmm. Debbie. And to that, what we need to be mindful of is our need to lean into the Eucharist. And we need to lean into this sacrament of uh, new life. It's interesting to note that this all took place on the shores of the Sea of Tiberias. Well, uh, when was the next time that they were going to be at the Sea of Tiberias? But at the the occasion of the resurrection in John 21.1. So 15 chapters later, there they are at the Sea of Tiberias. You know, it's a funny thing, Debbie. When you've been one place, and in that one place, something significant happened in your life, you're going to remember that, sure. especially the next time you're there. Mm-hmm. There is this phenomenon that St. Augustine talks about, and it's it, the sense memory phenomenon. It's a fascinating truth that all five of our senses are filtered um, to... Uh, that cashew-shaped node of tissue called the uh, hippocampus, long-term memory. So this is why when we smell something, see something, taste something, hear something at a particular place, it's as if we've entered a time machine. Mm -hmm. And I've got to believe that (laughs) the apostles at at the resurrection, there on the Sea of Tiberias, and the resurrection at the Sea of Tiberias, were made to remember what happened that day months ago where something extraordinary happened. And certainly our Lord would have the apostles see, as we are to see, that which is extraordinary isn't something that is abstract, but leads to new life. And that new life is always caught up in the resurrection. And certainly the apostles would have been made to see this. Many church fathers and theologians have talked about this. And it's relevant to this discussion because for John... Not one detail should be overlooked, more than any other evangelist. Yes. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels. Certainly, they are very strategic in each and every word as, as each and every word is inspired by the Holy Spirit. But John, more so than the other three. This is why he's known as the eagle, because he soars, right? Ah, uh, there's layers. I heard that before. Yes, yes. Oh, the eagle. He is the eagle because, because of his theology, Right, mm. it, it's so. I've heard of it as the gospel of love, you know, the beloved. Yeah, and the point to be had here, Debbie, is while he soars, the great paradox is he goes up, yet in going up, he reveals greater depth. Right, there's so many layers. You peel one layer back, and another layer back, and another layer back. 
Um, you see this in the opening uh, verses. He's echoing creation when he says in the beginning, and he's doing so to remind us that in Jesus Christ we have a new creation. And from its very outset, John wants us thinking differently, uh, filling in the gaps, if you will, uh, theologically to the other three Gospels. Okay, I'm looking up at the clock here, Debbie, and we are out of time. This is certainly a a fun series of verses. I, I think in future weeks we'll have the opportunity to discuss more about what's going on here. Let us go ahead and wrap up with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.